I want to encourage you to turn to Acts 9, 32 through 43. We're still in our series called uh, Poured Out uh, on Service, and this morning we want to talk about how serving can transform us. So this past week I was uh, reading an article that was a fascinating article, and it says, what the chauffeur saw, what is it really like driving the rich and the famous? And this was, a, this was an amazing article. When David Batty interviewed high-end chauffeurs in the L.A. area and some in the London area, he got an earful. And Batty uh, basically said that chauffeurs are servants. You are not a friend, a confidant, a buddy. You are a servant. Your job is to take wealthy people from point A to point B and serve them in the process and have a great attitude or it's possible you get fired. It's really not about you. It's about the people that you're driving around. And all the chauffeurs that he interviewed said, yes, we were definitely treated like servants. Sometimes we were treated as if we were invisible and sometimes we were treated with contempt and scorn and sometimes it was even worse than that. And he said, interestingly, there's supposedly a thick window that separates the chauffeur from the people traveling in the back, the superstars. That's only in theory. Because in practice, what he said was that that thick window is, is open a little bit, and the chauffeurs got to see what was going on in the back seats. Sometimes these chauffeurs saw men and women buying drugs. Sometimes they saw lovers' trysts. Sometimes they saw people in the grip of sickness because of addiction. And he said, in the world of chauffeuring the rich and the famous, it's rare to find a client that treated the driver with any sort of dignity and honor. And one thing really stood out in this article, and that is the chauffeurs were transformed by their serving. They were transformed by their serving and not in a good place but into, into a bad place. Because sometimes they saw the worst in human behavior. And really what this article did for me was it reinforced a simple truth. And the truth is that anytime you serve anyone, it, it can be, and usually it is, a transformative experience for you, the server. You can be transformed into somebody who is better, or you can be transformed into somebody who is worse. But tran- but Serving always transforms you into a certain direction. And that's the, the, the idea that I want to set before you today. When you serve in the body of Christ, it can be a transformative experience if you do certain things. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What are those things that we do that transform us into people who are more passionate in the way that we follow Christ? We're going to see this in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10 in a story, uh, and the story is a really interesting one because it contrasts Peter and Paul. So in Acts 9 and 10, Luke is contrasting the serving experiences of Peter and Paul. I should say Saul, because this is in the, in the era of Saul before he was Paul. And these serving experiences are dramatically different. So we're going to start off with, with the negative example, which is Paul's serving experience. In the summer of 35 AD, 
Paul, Saul the Pharisee is dramatically saved. He's on his way to Damascus. It's 150 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a, it's a lengthy trip in those days. And if you could see the group that is traveling with Saul, you would see people who are not smiling. They have grim determination to wipe out and destroy the Christian faith. They're headed up there to Damascus, and they're going to detain people, and they're going to arrest people, and they're going to, they're going to take them back to Jerusalem, and these people are going to face the music, and Paul is mad. He's angry. And then Jesus shows up. Right there on the Damascus Road, a white, hot light from heaven zooms down, and Paul encounters Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And in the days that follow, Saul comes to Christ. He's blind. And for the next three days, he ponders this stunning turn of events. He'd gone to destroy the Christian faith. Now in those three days of darkness and silence, he thinks, now I need to establish the Christian faith. I need to do whatever it takes to get people to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he said he is. And so Paul begins to ramp up ministry. He's going to take the world by storm. But here's the problem. It is ministry in human power. It's ministry in human power. His passion for ministry was based upon what he could do in his own power. And consequently, he becomes a bit of a problem. There in Damascus, you remember from last week's message that Josh gave us, he had to be lowered down in, by, by a basket. Remember, Josh talked about the fact that last week that if you were going to be a great hero, you would get to the city walls, you would throw a ladder up against those walls, you would climb those walls, and you're the first into the city. Big hero. Saul is the anti-hero. Saul has to be let out of the city of Damascus in a basket. Things aren't going well for Paul, Saul, as he's uh, taken the world by storm and human power. And then he goes down to Jerusalem, and, and man, everybody wants to kill him, and they got to smuggle him out of the city and send him back to Tarsus. And listen to what Luke says when, when he leaves. Then, like then after Paul was gone. Then after Paul left the city. Then the church all over Judea, Galilee, and Samaria experienced a season of peace. Like, get Paul out of the way, and what did they experience? Peace. Because Paul was wanting to do service in human power, in the power that only he could muster, in the power that only he could provide. He was serving, no doubt about that, and his service was high-quality service in one sense. He knew the scriptures, but he was serving in the human power that only God can, can provide. Now what Luke does is he, he switches gears, and he gives us the positive example, and the positive example is the apostle Peter. And Peter's story comes in three acts. Act one is Acts 9, 32 through 35, and Acts 1 happens in this way. As Peter was ministering from place to place, he visited God's devoted ones in the village of Lydda. He met a man there named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus, the anointed one, instantly and divinely heals you. Now get up and make your 
deathbed. I want you to imagine Peter going from town to town throughout the, the coastal plain of Israel. Back then, synagogues were in homes. The people who, who owned the home lived in one part of the home, and the synagogue was in the other part of the home. That's exactly the setup of the house churches we minister to in Cuba. Pastor lives on one side of the house. The church meets in the other side of the house. That's the way it worked in Israel in the first century. And Peter's going from, from house to house to house, ministering in the synagogues and preaching about Christ. He gets into, into one home, and he discovers that the husband of the home has become paralyzed, maybe due to an accident, maybe due to a spinal cord injury, but he is paralyzed. It's very serious. It's been eight years. It's likely that this is a permanent deal. And he's, he's devastated. Luke gives us his name. His name is Aeneas. And there we have an interesting little detail. Because when Luke gives us names in the Gospel of Acts, many times those names are the real names, but they're, they're, they're used to, to put the, pull the story along. And you may remember that Aeneas was uh, Virgil's hero in the Aeneid. That was a highly popular book uh, during this time. Aeneas was the hero from the city of Troy. He traveled to the Italian peninsula. He is the ancestor of the Roman people. And Luke seems to be making a point. Here's a guy named Aeneas. You'd think here's a guy who's got great power, but he's paralyzed. He has no power. And what is Peter going to do? Peter, with a simple command, says, Aeneas, he's not raising his voice. He's not yelling. He says, Aeneas, Jesus, the anointed one, instantly and divinely heals you. Now, go make up your bed. I want you to notice that when Peter uh, says this, he says it almost the exact same way that Jesus said it when he told the man at Bethesda, uh, take up your mat and walk. He is consciously trying to pattern his ministry of healing, his ministry of evangelism after the pattern of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the contrast where Paul is ramping up human power. Peter's service centers on the power that only God can provide. A big contrast here between human power and service that is done in the power of the Spirit. And we notice the result in verse 35. The result in verse 35 was all at once he stood to his feet. The guy's been paralyzed for eight years. The guy has not been able to use his legs. He stands up on his feet, and when the people of Lydda and Sharon saw, it, saw him, they became believers in the Lord. You better believe that news about this traveled very quickly. Look, they didn't have you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You couldn't tweet this out to a whole bunch of people on your, on your list. But in the ancient world, there were people who would run from one town to the next. You can't believe what happened in Lydda. Aeneas, remember Aeneas, the guy who had that bad accident. Aeneas is healed, and he was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's act one in this three-part story. And the point is, when you serve in the power of the flesh, your service is not going to be effective. When you serve in the power of the Spirit, um, there is power to do things that would seem to be impossible, like Dramatic things, like supernatural healings, like, like maybe things that are quietly supernatural, like the shifting of an attitude, the healing of bitterness, 
or like supernatural events that you never see in the physical realm, but they happen in the spiritual realm. And because they happen in the spiritual realm, lives are transformed, but you don't see them in the physical, but God is at work in the spiritual. I love it when that happens. You don't get the supernatural when all you're doing is ramping up human power. And that's the point of Act 1. Now we go to Act 2 in the story. In Act 2, the focus is on Dorcas. Now, Peter is still ministering, but Peter's not the focus. Dorcas is, is the focus here. So after healing Aeneas, Peter is summoned to Joppa. Now, Joppa is the seacoast city that is um, about, um, about a day's journey on the Mediterranean coast. And it's, it's the city that was made famous by the prophet Jonah, because Jonah was told, told to go to Nineveh in the east. Jonah said, heck no, I'm going, I'm going to the west. I'm going to board a ship in Joppa, and I'm headed as far away as I possibly can from Nineveh. That's Joppa. And that's where Peter is going to. Peter arrives in the city. He's taken to a large home, He's led upstairs to a very spacious upper room, and as he climbs the stairs, he hears the all-too-familiar sounds of mourning and grief. You know, mourning in in Middle Eastern cultures is so different than in American cultures. Uh, In in Middle Eastern cultures, they they wail and they cry and they're loud when they mourn, and Peter's hearing the loud mourning in the upper room, and he arrives at the top. And he sees a cluster of woman, women surrounding a table. And on the table is a woman who is embalmed for burial. It's their friend, Tabitha. Now, who is this woman? This is so interesting. Remember, when Luke gives us names, he's giving us names to hint at the direction of the story. Aeneas possessed a name that suggested power, but he had none. And Tabitha in, in Acts 2 also suggests power. And not right now she has none because she's dead. But the name Tabitha means gazelle. And gazelles are a species of antelope. They're quick and speedy, like speedy 50 miles an hour speedy. They're very fast. And we don't know why she was given the name gazelle during her life. Maybe she was a very fast runner. Um, Maybe she was really fast at her craft of sewing and making clothes. Whatever it was, she was fast at something. And she got the nickname Gazelle. But here's what's really interesting. She's called the disciple. And what's interesting about this is this is the only place in the New Testament where the feminine version of the word disciple is used. That's amazing. There's so many other women who are mentioned in the Bible, but not one of them is given, in, given disciple as the, the feminine version of that noun. So this is a very, very special individual. What was so special about, about Tabitha, the gazelle? What was so special was the quality of her service. She was an amazing, amazing servant. So as Peter draws near to the body, the women begin to separate, and he can see Tabitha, And they begin telling stories about this amazing woman of God. They tell her stories about Tabitha making garments for them. Now, widows in the ancient world were almost always destitute, lacking even the most basic of clothing. So Tabitha's ministry was to make clothes, and not just any kind of clothes, but undergarments. 
The Greek word for tunic here is chiton, and it refers to a garment of clothing made directly, that was worn directly against the skin. She is wearing women's underwear. Now, I know in our culture, we sort of take this for granted. But I heard a story in Cuba that helped me realize that you don't take this for granted. A friend of mine in Cuba said, my wife and I were so poor that we ran out of underwear and didn't have the ability to buy more. I had two pair, and then it was down to one pair, and then it was down to no pair. He said, you don't, you don't realize the shame that I felt knowing that I could not provide for my basic needs and the needs of my wife. Now multiply that times a thousand for these widows in the ancient world who had the shame of not having a piece of clothing next to their, next to their, their body. It was, it was very shameful. It was degradingly low. So Dorcas the gazelle took it upon herself uh, to, to create undergarments for women in the city of Joppa. Luke even suggests that this may have been an order of widows because he uses the definite article in front of the word widow. It's like the widows, like the widows who were the order of widows that Tabitha took care of. I don't know that that's the case, but it could be. She was a faithful maker of women's undergarments. Now, you may know of, of the, <clears throat> you may have seen some ancient pictures. This is from the Louvre Museum. Uh, this is made out of Egyptian linen, and this would have been the kind of undergarment that women would, would make, but there were others like that. But the point on this picture is that it took some skill to make these, and Dorcas has the skill to do it, and she's doing it with love and doing it with a vision of serving people that don't have much. You may also know of the name Sarah Blakely, who is the, the um, founder of the um, Spanx used to be a women's undergarment company. Now it's men and women. Uh, she's a billionaire. A billionaire because she made outstanding undergarments. I would, I would tell you that Tabitha the gazelle is the Sarah Blakely of the ancient world using exceptional skill to serve not the rich and the famous, not the trendy and hip, but those people who had nothing, people who were absolutely destitute. At this point, uh, the story crescendos with some drama because Peter asks all the widows to leave the room. He kneels down and he says, Tabitha, rise up. Now, I got to push the pause button on the story for just a second, and I want to take you back to Mark 5, 41. Jesus did a similar miracle there was a leader in a synagogue by the name of Jairus. His daughter was dying. By the time Jesus gets there, the daughter is dead. Jesus, not to be deterred, tells the mourners to leave, the parents to stay. And he says in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means rise, little girl. And, and Peter is saying something that sounds similar. Jesus says, Talitha kum, Peter says, Tabitha, rise. Again, Peter is modeling his ministry of healing 
after the pattern of Jesus Christ, doing it in the Spirit's power. Now, go back to the main focus of this Act 2. Act 2, the main focus is that Tabitha the gazelle is using her natural gifts to the glory of God. Maybe she was a trained seamstress. Maybe she was a businesswoman. Maybe she was just really good at what she did, but she's using her natural gifts to minister to people who couldn't pay her back, the widows. Natural gifts, natural talents that came from God. And this is a really important pattern that we see in the scriptures because God gives us natural gifts. Some of us are really good at math and science. I did not get those genes. I love reading about it, but that's not me. Others are really amazing artists. Others excel at using their hands. Others excel in creating and sustaining friendships. The Bible is very clear that God has given to each one of us natural gifts and talents that we can invest in ministry. It doesn't matter what what kind of skill you have or what level of skill you happen to have. God wants you to take the natural gifts that he's given to you and invest those in things that will matter for eternity. There are two dangers as you use these natural talents. The one danger is to say, oh, I am God's gift to the world. I am amazing, and they're lucky to have me. That's one danger. The other danger is you say, uh, I'm not that great. My gifts don't really matter. I'm not that good at what I do. You are, but you know, you're saying, I'm not that good at what I do. And the, the first danger is false humility. The second danger is, is old-fashioned pride. And here's what Dorcas's example tells us. When we invest our natural talents into ministry, we're going to show forth our discipleship in tangible ways. That's what she did. She's the only woman in the Bible given the label disciple, and it's given in the feminine form. She's using her natural talents to tangibly show forth her discipleship. And how does she do it? She does it by serving widows, the people who cannot pay her back, the people who don't have Instagram accounts to be able to post the awesome things that she's doing. And that leads to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, the focus then goes back to Peter. And what happens in Acts chapter 3 is is pretty amazing. It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with, well, you'd expect this to say, a fellow fisherman, somebody from the same industry that Peter was in, but it's not a fellow fisherman. It's a, a guy named Simon the Tanner. Hmm. Why in the world does he say with Simon the Tanner? Tanners were loathed and despised by the religious elite in the, in the ancient world. And the reason why they were loathed and despised was because they trafficked in dead animals. What happened was that the, you would receive as a tanner dead carcasses. You would then take the, the, the skin off the carcass and you would begin to put that skin in tannic acid and you would begin to tan that skin and you smelled like death all the time. And the Pharisees despised tanners. Why the heck is Peter staying with a tanner? Why not a fisherman? They could talk about fishing stories. Peter says, hey, man, one time I caught 153 fish. In this, well, actually, Jesus helped me with that, but you know, it was kind of cool. 
He's not doing that. He's staying with Simon the Tanner. Why, why stay with him? Because Peter has this one passion. The one passion is, I want to be with people who want to advance the kingdom. And if that means I'm with a person who is despised by the relig- religious elite, so be it. I want to be with people who are <clears throat> advancing the kingdom of God. And because of that attitude, an amazing breakthrough takes place. Peter goes up onto the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. The breezes are blowing off the Mediterranean Sea. Peter thinks, I'm going to take a little siesta. And uh, Jesus shows up in a dream, in a vision. I won't go through the, uh, through the whole thing, but basically in that vision, God calls Peter to reach the Gentiles with the good news. Now, wait a second. Just as people hated the Tanners, people also hated the Gentiles. So, so Peter's got to make a decision. What, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I really into kingdom advance or not? Peter pushes back on Jesus big time. No, Jesus. I'm not, no, I don't, don't think this is, this is right. And, and, and Peter relents to the command of Jesus, and he goes into Caesarea, and there was a man there named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And so here's Peter going from Joppa up to Caesarea by the sea. And when he gets up there, Caesarea, to Caesarea, not only does Cornelius come to Christ, but his entire household comes to Christ. And now we have a mini Pentecost, not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea the gateway into the Gentile world. There's a big breakthrough. Big breakthrough takes, takes place. And that brings us to the main idea of this story. This, the focus in the story is on, on what genuine service does for us. And in these three acts, act one, we see, the, see this. To serve successfully, we've got to serve in the power of the Spirit. Saul wasn't cutting it. He had, took the best of human skill but his service was ineffective because it was only done in human power. Peter does it in the power of the Spirit. Act one, to serve successfully, we've got to serve in the power of the Spirit. Act two of the story is to serve successfully, we must use our God-given human talents. God gave them to us for a purpose, and the purpose is that we might use those effectively. Act three is that as we serve successfully, God will grant us breakthroughs in kingdom work. As Peter is serving successfully, as Dorcas is serving successfully, we see in this story there's a breakthrough in kingdom work. So let me crystallize the main idea this way. Supernatural power plus natural gifting leads to a season of breakthrough. I know it's up there on the screen, but let me just read that again. Supernatural power plus natural gifting will lead you to a season of breakthrough. And there's definitely a human side and a divine side to this. On the divine side, we are called to live in the power of the Spirit. And we don't take that for granted here at Grace, but I will tell you, a lot of believers really take this for granted. They don't know that they can grieve the Spirit. They don't know that they can quench the Spirit. They don't know that they are commanded to regularly be filled with the Spirit. And by neglecting that command, they too often operate in human strength and forget about the strength that God provides. There's a divine side to this, and that is we need to learn 
how to walk in the Spirit and the dynamics of spiritual life. You don't know that a lot of times when you first come to Christ. I had a friend who came to Christ in Dallas. I was teaching a Bible study. It was a group of attorneys on Thursday mornings. And I remember one time this this friend of mine said, wait a second, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is a he. I always thought the Holy Spirit was an it. What does this mean? You know, a lot of people come to Christ, they, they don't understand that. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. In order to serve well, you need to understand the dynamics of how spiritual life works. That's the divine side. There's also a human side. On the human side, we must understand where our talents really lie. It's one thing to walk in the power of the Spirit. It's another thing to have the personal self-awareness to say, these are my talents. This is what I'm really good at. This is how God has strengthened me and gifted me. I want to invest these natural talents in kingdom, kingdom work. Let's think about your natural talents for a second. Your natural talents are a combination of three things. They start with physical abilities in your body. Okay? They start with physical abilities in your body. Anybody know who the guy on, on the right is? Patrick Mahomes, right? Come on. Is that guy good? He's amazing. He's amazing. How many of you at age 23 could do what he did? No hands? Come on. He has physical abilities resident in his body that are unique. The person you probably don't know is the girl on the left. Her name is Alma Deutscher from the UK. She's 13 years old. She's probably 14 now. I would encourage you to get, see a YouTube clip of her, Alma uh, Dutcher. It's D-U-E-T-C-H-E-R. She is the most astonishingly gifted young musician alive today. She's a little, a little Mozart. She played, uh, she wrote her first opera, okay, opera at the age of seven. She, uh, um, she, she wrote her first violin concerto at age nine in her first full-length opera of Cinderella that was premiered in Vienna, got a standing ovation. She's virtuoso in piano and violin and has astonishingly, astonishing intellectual talents. The, 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 she's amazing. How many of you, just to be, just, you can raise your hand, wrote an opera, age nine? Okay, just... Some of our natural talents are just resident in our body. You don't have to be as talented as, as these two are to have natural talents just plain resident in your body. That's a good thing. God has gifted us in, in, in those, those ways. Natural talents are also the product of hard work and grit. Amy Duckworth, in her amazing book on grit, said if you take a person who's talented... And you take a person who's gritty and you follow them for 15 years, on average, the person who is gritty has accomplished far more than the person who's talented. Why is that? Because talent makes you complacent. And if you got grit and hard work, you can end up doing better than if you have talent. So some people have been able to take their mediocre talents and turn them into amazing talents through grit and determination over time. Talents can be developed that way. But grit, hear me on this, grit is a choice. It's a choice. Some people don't make that choice. Grit is a choice. You can make the choice or not make the choice. 
But grit is not something I'm born with grit. Grit is something you choose to do. Some people choose it very early, but it's still a choice. Natural talents, thirdly, are uh, the product of God's sovereign work over our lives. Sometimes people encounter things in their life that force them to develop talents they never knew they had. I've heard that about people who were in one industry, and they went into another industry, and they realized, huh, I've got, I've got talents I didn't realize. And it came about because of God's sovereign work in my life. Let me give my dad for, for a second as an example. When we were living in Los Angeles in the early 1990s, my dad came to visit. And I was taking him back to the airport, and he said something to me that I, I never forgot, and it was really surprising at the time. He said, Rod, and this is the best of my ability, not a direct quote. He said, Rod, I don't think I've always managed my career with the diligence that I should have. Like, my jaw dropped, because my dad was a really, really accomplished person in a lot of ways. Really good in the manufacturing industry, really good in the banking industry, really good in the investments industry. I thought, what, like, like, what do you mean? Like, 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 like what do you mean? He said, I, he said I, I didn't marshal my talents into something that was, that was truly me. Again, those are my words, not, I'm kind of remembering his words. So my dad, my dad told me that, and I thought, okay, 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 I understand that. And then my dad ran for city council, and he got two terms in the city council in Naples, Florida, when Naples was just exploding. And I saw my dad come into his own. Now, here he is in his, in his 60s, uh, a career of 30 years. He's in his 60s, and I see my dad just absolutely blossom in terms of his ability. I um, see him becoming who he really is in his 60s. Now, some of you who are in your 30s or 20s right now think, I would never wait that long. That's ridiculous. I will never wait that long to see natural talents come. You may have to. I mean, life is life. And what I'm, what I'm telling you is that God placed my dad in a situation in his 60s where the real him came out, and he was creative, he was insightful, and everybody in the city council knew he was a follower of Christ. And when the pastor didn't show up to give the invocation, guess who they called on? My dad. And my dad had to be a person of integrity representing Christ and his district on the city council. And he loved it. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes natural talents will, can be the product of God's sovereign work that takes place in your life. And that brings me back to the, to the big idea. I'll state it in a different way. When you combine supernatural power with natural gifting, you set yourself up for a season a breakthrough. That's the focus of these two chapters in Acts chapter 8 uh, and 9 in the first part of chapter 10. So let me give you some tangible break, uh, takeaways that we can apply here at, here at Grace. First takeaway is this. Take an assessment. I urge you to take some sort of assessment. We live in the golden era of assessments in 2019. It wasn't that long ago that personality assessments were very limited. You had the Myers-Briggs, you had the DISC, you had some others, 
and, and they were clunky, and they weren't very well researched. That's different today. Today, we have all sorts of amazing, uh, amazing uh, gifts, uh, assessment tests. If you're looking for a way to begin, here's a great book called Reading People by Anne Bogle. I'll leave that up here for a little while, Reading People, because she goes through a lot of the major assessments that people are using these days, and she talks about how they work and how they work for her. It's a, it's a very readable book, very good book, and you can determine which assessment you might want to take. But we're going to make it really easy for you at Grace because we use two assessments, the, the Clifton Strengths Finder and the Berkman assessment, and we have three or four people in our church who are Gallup certified strengths coach, coaches, and we have two people who are certified in the Berkman assessment, and we love using these to help people clarify what their natural strengths are and how they can invest these into, into ministry. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to put together a class on that that starts on February the 24th. And we will pay for your assessment if you take the class. So you, it, it'll give you, your, if you take this class, you'll get your top five Clifton strengths. We will pay for your assessment and you can have your top five strengths. And if you ask Mike, he may, he may coach you in your top five. We're that serious about wanting you to get in touch with your natural giftings so that you can you can invest these into ministry in the power of the Spirit. One quick question. Why not just take a spiritual gifts test? We used to do that. What we found was that people were taking spiritual gifts tests as if they were personality tests. Well, that doesn't work. You know, if, if you're new to Christ and you take a spiritual gifts test, you're being asked questions that you don't even know how to answer because you have no experience in these areas. So we, we like taking tests about our natural talents so that we can invest these into ministry knowing that God is going to show up as you invest your natural talents into ministry and the power of the Spirit. Here's a second, um, second takeaway. Broaden your view of the supernatural. Broaden your view of the supernatural. I, I will tell you that it's very easy for most people today to live as practical atheists. They, they, they know intellectually that God exists. They never experience him personally. They know intellectually that God exists. They've received Christ. They have a, a real relationship with Jesus. They just, just don't encounter him. And it's really important if we're going to minister in the supernatural that we broaden our view of the supernatural. I want to remind you that the God of the universe is, is here in this room right now. He is, he is contemporaneously present at every point in space, meaning he's here in this room, he's next to you, and he wants you to realize he is very near. That's why this, the, the Lord's Prayer should be translated, Our Father, who is very near, because the heavens that Jesus talks about is plural. It refers to the heavenly realms around us. Our Father, who's not out there between Jupiter and Mars. I should say maybe Saturn and Jupiter. I can get my planets mixed up. Um, it's our Father who's very near and very close. 
And so what God's manifest presence is, he's always present. His manifest presence is, is when we receive the fullness of the spirit, walk in that spirit, encounter the manifest presence of God, and now are walking in power to do what he told us to do. Amen. And that, that's what's so important about, about living in the supernatural. Then the third takeaway is that anticipate the breakthrough. You know, a lot of us, we will pray and assume God's not going to do anything. We'll get on our knees and beg God for changes. And we, well, he's probably not going to do that. It's like in Acts chapter 12 where the prayer meeting in, in the upper room, Lord, please deliver Peter from jail. Okay, God did it. Peter's at the door. Rhonda comes down and, and <clears throat> Peter says, it's, it's me, Peter, oh, open the door. She doesn't open the door. She, she runs up and says, Peter's at, Peter's at the door. Oh, shut up. Shut up. He's not at the door. They're praying that he would be released from jail. Shut up. He's not, he's not at the door. No, no. He, he really is. Peter really was at the door. God had answered their prayers. It's important for us to anticipate the breakthrough as if God is really alive and working in our day. And then the next takeaway is, um, well, next takeaway is, well, that was the third takeaway. Look at that. There we go. Okay. I love this story because it's a story about service. Serving will transform you. It can trans transform you for, for the better or for the worse. But in Christ, serving is going to transform you if you invest your, your natural talents into ministry in the power of the Spirit. God is going to give you a breakthrough. You will see fresh things and new things happening. We're seeing some really cool breakthroughs in our church right now. Really cool breakthroughs. And we, we need people who are full of the Spirit and operating in their natural strengths to say, I'm in, I'm in. I want to invest in the kingdom of God right here at Grace Community Church. Let's stand for a closing prayer.